Welcome to Profiles, a three-part podcast that dives deep into the lives of promotional products professionals. Profiles is brought to you by Promo Journal, a division of Promo Corner. Promo Journal provides fresh, daily content from industry thought leaders. Blogs, videos, product features, and live content all in one convenient location. Weekly advertising opportunities are available. Contact sales at promocorner.com to get your message seen. Hello and welcome to our fifth series of Promo Corner's new podcast, Profiles, where we'll be talking with longtime industry professionals about their experiences and their take on the promotional products world today. I'm your host, Steve Woodburn, and we appreciate your taking time out of your busy day to schedule time with us. Our profile this month has been in our industry since the early 1990s as a result of his father owning a company that was originally an importer and eventually moved into decorating products with logos. After college, he worked with his father, but after realizing his dad really wasn't as interested in growing the business as he was, went out on his own. Our guest has been honored as an ASI Supplier Entrepreneur of the Year, and his company and salespeople were recognized multiple times with achievement awards by industry distributors. After moving his company's production facilities from the Northeast to the Southeast, he soon realized the cultural differences between the two areas. You could have done a sitcom about this New York guy moving his business down into a southern city, a southern town of 15,000 people. My name was Boss Man, by the way. Anywhere I went, my name was Boss Man. Our guest is the epitome of the word entrepreneur, a person who starts a business and is willing to risk loss in order to make money. He eventually grew his supplier company to $30 million in revenue before agreeing to be acquired in 2016. His name is Eric Levin, and he now holds the title of Executive Vice President of Decoration Services for Top 10 Supplier Alpha Broder. For most of us in this industry, you get into it because your family's in it, or completely by accident. For Eric, it was the former, as his dad owned a company called LibroLine. My dad had a company named LibroLine, and Libro actually stands for Levin Brothers. And it was originally a, a, a subsidiary of my grandfather's company. So my grandfather and his brothers were importers. And then at some point uh, in the mid 60s, they kind of got enough requests for this decorated stuff that they started a little decoration business, which was a little tiny subsidiary of their big business. And my grandfather was just spearheading it. My dad at the time was going through basic training in Jersey. Um, and I don't know what exactly happened, whether it was my brother getting born or he had been in in the states too long to send him overseas but he was one of a few guys in his platoon that didn't go um and i don't remember the reason for it. he told me he actually told me the stories about basic training he said the coldest winter he ever had was in in that fort in jersey where they did their basic training but for some strange reason he ended up not going and my grandfather got leukemia and so my dad came in to help with this kind of business that he had you know, no intention of ever really going into. The company was located on the 10th floor of a building in New York City with only one elevator that could hold one pallet of products, not to mention having to share that elevator with everyone else in the building. Um, when I first got there, I think he had about a 12-page catalog. 
And back then the industry was much different. There were still plenty of people actually, actually manufacturing in the United States and China wasn't China yet. So there were not a lot of one-stop shop type of companies in this industry. Pen manufacturers were pen manufacturers and notebook manufacturers were notebook manufacturers. And some of it had gone to Korea and then you know, things started in Korea and then they went to Taiwan and then eventually, well, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and then eventually to China. But back then there were not these one-stop shops. So my dad kind of had these niche products that he did. He would never go into that kind of commodity stuff. He had a 5,000 square foot manufacturing little facility. Um, and he really focused on unique items. One of the items he had was a, a wood timer, a three minute wood timer. And salesmen back in the day used to come into people's offices and flip the timer and say, hey, can I just have three minutes of your time? And then they would leave you with it. My dad did folding fans. We actually have the folding fans still in, in the line today, but he did those folding fans and people use them for things like wedding invitations. For those who haven't been in this industry long, it may be hard to believe there was an industry pre-internet. No cell phones, no computers, no fax machines, no rush orders. And it was just a, a very, very different time. The lead times back then were 15 days, was standard lead times were, were 15 days in this industry. And when you got an order, you actually got an order in from FedEx or UPS or DHL or a couple of other ones that are now not in the industry, where someone would send you the purchase order and in between two pieces of cardboard was something called camera ready art, where they actually sent you black and white artwork and you would get up every morning and it was like Christmas. The, the, the UPS guy would show up with 80 envelopes, you'd unzip them and the orders came in that way. And then, you know, eventually he even had the beginnings where they had thermal fax paper where it, it, would, it would cut it off and it would roll up and you couldn't touch it for the first 30 seconds because it would smear, right? So it was, a, it was a definitely a, a different industry back then. And what's interesting to me about it is people my age, you know, in their, in their mid 50s, low 50s, we're the tail end of that side of the business into the future of the business. We literally were the last of a group. We didn't have email. Mm -hmm. You didn't send an, there was no internet. When I first started working for my father, believe it or not, he wasn't on computers. He actually would type up the invoices and then he would take a ledger card and file it, you know, that you owed him money, like a ledger card. And, and then he would go through and you would flip through your ledger cards to call people as a, as a way of doing receivables. After graduating college, Eric decided to go to work for his dad while he was figuring out what to do next. Yeah, so I worked with my dad for five years. Um, I actually started the first, I had no idea what I wanted to do after I graduated college. I actually had a, a US business history degree. So I, I liked studying history and then I turned it into a, something with, with business, but I didn't know what I was gonna do. I thought I was gonna be a teacher at some point. Um, and right after I graduated, he said, well, you know, while you're trying to figure this stuff out, just come work with me. So I, I, I was living with my mom at the time in Westchester. I used to take the train into the city to go there. I think I made $9 an hour. And the first thing he did in, in my family, typical my family way of doing things was he put me on a hot stamping machine. And he said, if you want to work for me, you go work in my factory. I went back there and I worked in his factory and eventually I became the fastest person on the presses. I think he left me back there for about three months. And then he came in one day and he said, come up front. I want to talk to you. And I said, he goes, you're still here. It's been three months. You've been on that machine for three months. You never came to me for anything. 
what else do you want to do here? So um, I ended up coming up front. I actually put him on computer for the first time in his life. So I actually uh, installed a computer system for them. I actually put him on ASI software, um, which was interesting. And I was using little calendars before Microsoft calendars to figure production scheduling. And I really got a... Um, I really got a passion for the industry when I started looking at the competitors. Pre-internet also meant no email blasts or digital marketing. So suppliers were using catalogs put out by various companies that compiled supplier products into a single catalog. So back then, because there was no one-stop shop, there were ASI and a company named Impact Advertising used to put out books. And the reason they did that is because a distributor didn't want to walk around with 50 books. They wanted to have a diversity of product, but the manufacturer's product wasn't diverse. A notebook guy was a notebook guy. Like I said, a pen guy was a pen guy, right? So they put out these, um, these books that distributors could buy and they would get their, their name printed on it. And suppliers would advertise in those books. And if you had a product in that book, in most of them, it was an exclusive to you. So people built their businesses actually by kind of monopolizing a product within those books. And I'm talking big circulations. You know, back then, ASI had one of Spectrum. I think a million copies of that thing went out um, at its peak. And so if you were the guy who had the Swiss Army knife in there, you were the guy and you grew, you could grow your business by doing that. So I really got a passion for the industry and studying that stuff. He was anxious to grow the business with hopes of becoming a top supplier in the industry. But his dad was at an age where he was happy with the size of the company and wasn't eager to take out bank loans or get venture capital to grow the business exponentially. Eric realized it was time to move on. So I, I, I would say the reasons that I left were just, I was young, I wanted to, I was a maverick, I wanted to grow, and I just didn't understand fiscally what it was going to take and what I was asking him to do personally for my own ambition. And looking back on it, probably I, I could have handled that a lot better. Um, but it's all good in the end because he eventually had a really good business and a nice run at the end. And, and I had a nice run myself. It was only natural he stayed in this business and started Jetline, a company he named after his beloved New York Jets. His next decision was deciding what he was going to sell. And it came to him at a show he attended in Asia. And so I had been in Taiwan the year before um, and the James company, who's the company that had the patent for the extrusion process of making a slinky, the patent ran out. So there was a company in Taiwan making slinkies. And, you know, I, again, I had studied the industry and, and prime resources, funny because Steve worked there along with me, uh, was a, you know, a company that was on my, on my radar. They were the company that I was trying to become. They were one of the first one-stop shop companies and Bob Letter would come out with creative product every year. If you don't know him, he's an industry icon, great guy. Um, and I just followed that company and I said, wow, I watched them go from having a round stress ball to about, you know, 30 different kinds of stress balls. And they had cows and stars and hearts and globes. And I said, you know, this must be working for these guys, right? And I said to myself, listen, if, if people are going to a trade show and they're giving somebody a stress ball, what are they going to give them next year? What's the next stress ball? The company was only making rainbow-colored slinkies at the time, and Eric asked if they could make them blue. Well, of course they could. 
So he bought thousands of them, bought a screen printing machine, and printed an outline of the world on the Slinkies along with his company name. ASI at the time sent out a box of products quarterly along with the catalogs from those companies to 12,000 distributors and Eric felt it might be able to generate some business for his startup. He got a desk and... And for the first six or eight months, I sat on a slinky box just because I never had time to go get a chair. And I walked in on a Monday morning and the lights had lit up on the phones and I thought it was broken. And I ended up picking the phone up and it was people wanting to order samples. So I would spend my day taking sample requests, packing them and shipping them. And then I would spend my nights decorating and, and I would literally work, you know, 15, 16, 17 hours a day, go home, sleep a couple hours and come back. We sold a million slinkies in, in the first year of business, a million. By the end of that year, I probably had about 30 employees and about six machines just cranking these things out all day long. We didn't have like dryers. We would stack them on trays with fans. <laughs> We, we, we burned our screens in the bathroom. Like we, we would take a little hose and just like, you know, we didn't have like a slop sink or anything like that. But eventually, you know, we, we took the product line and then I had the company from Taiwan create them in shapes of stars and hearts. And then I got creative. I, would, I had squares. So I took a white square and I put dice on it. So I had a dice slinky and then I took a round white one and I put cow spots on it. Anything that I could do, which would be that stress ball that Prime had, I tried to find a way to turn that in, into a slinky version. So, and it worked. You know, I'll, I'll never forget the first big order I got to. It was, it was from a distributor down in Jacksonville and it was for AT&T and they bought 50,000 slinkies. And that was like, that was it. Like I told my wife, I'll see you in a month. I, I literally was working Saturdays, Sundays. She didn't see me at all. I mean, didn't see me at all. As a result, his business took off as he added products and equipment, and his sales hit the $6 million mark. But then, 9-11-2001 happened, and it changed everything. And then, um, out of nowhere, September 11th happened. I'll never forget it, because I had a guy that worked for me who was ex-Army, and um, we, you know, we were in Yonkers. And my daughter was actually one month old to the day. We were living in Manhattan. I couldn't get home that night because they closed down the bridges, right? You could, there was no way of getting home. Luckily, my stepfather had an apartment in Yonkers at the time that he, he, he would go to. My, they lived on Martha's Vineyard, but he would come there to do business. And at that point, my sister was working for me. And so the two of us had to stay in his apartment. And I'll never forget the, the fighter jets buzzed the factory. Like they flew right over us. And like, when I say buzz the factory, it was like Top Gun buzzing the factory. It was that close. Like, and they were just circling around. He attended a Jets game a few weeks after 9-11 and had an epiphany. He realized there were certain things, no matter what, that Americans would never give up. And one of them was sports. As a result, he began to take any product he could think of and turn it into a sports product that he added to the line. Did it work? The year after September 11th, when the industry went backwards, we grew like 25%, 30%. And it was because we added all those products. So everybody likes to talk about pivoting these days, right? We pivoted pretty darn quickly at that point. But yeah, yeah it, and it worked. It really, it really worked and it, and it registered with the customers. And I remember like we would get calls. Um, there was a distributor out in, in the Portland area 
and the trailblazers were doing well. And he would just, you know, they would win a game and he'd say, can you get me 20,000 basketball maracas for the next game? Can you do them in three days and get them out? Hmm. And we, were, we weren't just getting small orders. We were starting to get like event marketing orders um, for this type of stuff at the time. To continue to expand, it was imperative the products he offered distributors were proven sellers, since money to grow was always an issue. In our next episode, Eric tells us why he chose the path of inexpensive products and what prompted him to move his company from New York to a town in the south with a water tower that looks like a giant peach. And then um, something I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy happened. I ended up getting an email, a fax, and certified mail all within an hour saying that you have been unionized. From all of us here at Promo Corner, thanks for listening to Profiles. I'm Steve Woodburn. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Profiles. Join us again as we continue to explore the lives of people who have impacted our industry. Profiles was brought to you by Promo Journal, a division of Promo Corner. Promo Journal provides fresh, daily content from industry thought leaders. Blogs, videos, product features, and live content all in one convenient location. Weekly advertising opportunities are available. Contact sales at promocorner.com to get your message seen.